This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Bill Davis as he considers what it looks like to honor our parents as they decline cognitively. Bill is a professor of philosophy at Covenant College. This episode was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2023 General Assembly and is sponsored by Covenant College. Let's listen as Bill provides practical ways that we can honor our parents while being sources of strength and even hope. The talk today is potentially um, distressing, and I'm sorry about that, though we're going to be talking about what it means to honor our parents as they decline, especially decline cognitively. Um, there's, it's because the principal reason that uh, this presentation was put together is that I've been trying to extend the work that I did in Departing in Peace is about how you help your loved ones make decisions when they no longer can in the hospital. And then, but I'm moving like a year and a half or two years earlier than that. Now, uh, what does it mean to honor your parents when they become dependent on you? Because, uh, because some kind of dementia. So Alzheimer's is the, most com- is the most common, but there are vascular dementias and Lewy body dementias, which may present as Parkinson's or uh, frontotemporal dementias. Those are the four major kinds. Um, they, they're highly common in, in some features, but then their progress is different depending upon the underlying phys- uh, physiological causes. And so the first thing to say is that I am not an expert on any of those, and if you have a family member who is experiencing uh, the beginnings of uh, fogginess that is not just ordinary uh, fogginess like, like even 20, 20-year-olds suffer in the middle of an exam. But um, <clears throat> if, so if they're aware, getting tested is an ordinary thing to do. And having a medical professional involved who can help you understand the specific kind of dementia does make a really big difference in the kind of caregiving that you can do. So the first thing to say is, I don't know anything. Well, I know only enough about that that you should get referred to somebody who can help you, who can run the right kinds of tests. Um, it's not going to change the, um, what amounts to the moral obligation that you have, the biblical obligation you have to honor your parents. It's going to inform it, though. So uh, getting a diagnosis does turn out to be very helpful in being uh, the kind of honoring child that you can be. Last piece of setup, I had hoped 
that I had thought that my research was going to focus on honoring everyone who's older than you. And it turns out that the, the task of just honoring your parents is complicated enough with enough uh, permutations and bizarre things that I'm only, in this talk, talking about honoring your parents. Not honoring all the old people in your life, older people in your life. Um, it's, it's just about your relationship with your parents. And uh, my father has gone to be with Jesus uh, nine years ago, almost to the day, and, and my mother is 88 years old, and an hour ago I learned that she tested positive for COVID. <laughs> so she is not declining cognitively. Uh, uh, Pastor Don here was talking to her just two days ago, and she's sharp as a tack uh, and dangerous. Uh, uh, and I love my mother. Uh, she, she loves Jesus, uh, and she loves me in that order, and that's the way it's supposed to be. Um, the place to begin, of course, is with the fifth commandment, if you're counting in the, in the standard reformed way, uh, to honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. That's, that part's clear, and we have Jesus speaking to it directly in Matthew 15. Uh, the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you have gained from me is given to God. What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. <clears throat> so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Uh, this is, uh, Jesus here clearly affirms the fifth commandment. And not only does he affirm it, but he applies and extends it and makes it clear that honoring includes something about provision. Because the Pharisees and teachers of the law had found a way to turn the fifth commandment into something that would allow people not to provide for their parents. And so Jesus calls them hypocrites because you should know, teachers of the law, that keeping the fifth commandment means somehow, and we're going to talk about this, uh, somehow providing for them. So that turns out to be part of it. We also see in 1 Timothy 5, uh, <clears throat> if anyone, is, just verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, and the focus here is on widows, and specifically about widows who have families who could care for them, the instruction to Timothy is don't spend the resources of the church to care for a widow who could be cared for by her family. <coughs> he has denied the faith, faith and is worse than an unbeliever. These are difficult words, but I think we have really clear uh, New Testament attestation as well as the application of the Old Testament case law in, in, the, um, in the rest of the Pentateuch, um, that honoring a father and mother is not just distantly waving and saying sup every once in a while. That's, um, it's, it's more than that. You knew that already, um, but we're going to talk about what it means when your parents become dependent. And it's, it's worth noting back in the Matthew 15 passage Jesus here is talking about parents who are needy. 
something that you, your parents have, might have gained from you, you're withholding from them. So we're not talking about uh, respecting parents who have lots of stuff. We're talking about parents who are in need, and the teachers of the law were giving people away to avoid caring for their parents when they were poor. Now, whatever else is going on. I don't know how your parents are doing. My mom is fine. But she might not be. So let me say a word about where we're going. Before we do, let's uh, pray together. I think we've got everybody that we're going to get. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us, and we know what it is to be a child by relating to you as our Father. We thank you for all that we know from the way you've revealed yourself to us and that we can cry out to you, Abba, and know that you hear us. Uh, We ask that you you would make us people who are eager to honor all those that you've given us to honor, both for their good and for ours. Please watch over this time. Make us more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So you've got case studies in front of you. The main reason you have a handout is to give you case studies. And we could, like, if they gave me three hours, and they didn't, uh, we would talk through each of the case studies, and uh, we would share, and we would do this inductively, and together, I'm pretty sure, that we would end up, uh, by induction, we would all agree together where I'm just going to take us by force, brute force. <clears throat> but what, so I'm going I'm to talk about the first case study, about Ethan Grant, because it is the precipitating cause of all of my current research on honoring our parents in their cognitive decline. So Edith and Grant, that's not their real names, but all these stories are true, uh, all four of the case studies. I'm going to talk about the first case, and then I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask everybody on this side toward the front. So uh, if if you think you're in the back, you're in the back. And in the back, maybe if you're not at a table, you're doing the third case study. And everybody who's at a table over here is going to do the second. I mean, you're the fourth case study. Two, three, four. And so uh, in a minute, I'm going to say, take a minute, read the one that's assigned to you. Two, three, four. And talk to the people around you. Ideally, talk to people that you don't know. Uh, like find a way to talk to somebody. And just, just, you're not going to get very long. But figure out if you have the same idea of how to answer the question bold at the end. So that's, that's what we're going to do with the case studies. Um, we're going to talk about what it means to honor parents. I'm going to do this part really fast because you already know how to honor parents when you're a child, how to honor your parents when you're an adult, how to honor your parents. That's the question mark in the stage after your parents uh, start to become dependent. <clears throat> I'm going to talk a bit about the different ways of imagining, how to tell the story of what's happening to you, what it means to narrate your existence. We're always seeking to encourage everyone, ourselves, starting with ourselves, to narrate their experience in a gospel way, which means recognizing the the fallenness of the world, but not grieving without hope. And it's super tempting when you're caring for um, a loved one who is less and less aware of who they are, Uh, and they're becoming frustrated that they don't remember who they are, and they might become combative or difficult, and the story needs to be a gospel story, not a, oh, no, uh, the world has fallen on my head, and it's hopeless. So we're going to talk about how you think about the story, say a word about caregiving, 
and then, and then things you might be doing. There'll be a homework assignment, that's at the end. Uh, you will be issued grades. You'll find out from the grade how much Jesus loves you. You know, like all grades. Uh, <clears throat> no, when I say that to my Covenant College students, they think I'm serious. And then you'll get a grade and you'll know how much Jesus loves you. And they say, I know. Stop it! That's not what it means. Uh, so we got a lot to do. And, um, and I've, I've never been able to say no to Marie. So when she says it's time to stop, I will stop. Um, but I, I think I know how this is going to work. So let me tell you the story about, uh, th- these are not the names, but this happens to me. Um, a friend, and this was a PCA pastor, uh, contacted me, said uh, he was coming into town, and he, he had a question that he wanted me to answer. <laughs> oh, good. That is never a good sign. Uh, so uh, we went to Starbucks. I remember where I was sitting, and he, just, he described his grandmother, not named Edith, but where she's going to be, the rest of this is true. She's 91. She, she lives in an assisted living facility. She's often confused. It's not... It's not the kind of thing where she doesn't recognize him anymore. She does recognize him. She can't, make, she can't direct her own care. She can't keep enough of the information together to make choices about her own life. And that was before she fell and broke her hip. And she has to go through the rehab. And she often forgets that she's not supposed to try to stand up and walk when there's nobody around. The money that she had saved, she bought a long-term care program for to, to carry her through the end of her life. So she has the resources to pay for her care in this assistant living facility, but not for a full-time sitter. And what she needs in order to be safe is somebody who's going to sit in the room uh, for $29 an hour. I'm pretty sure I remember that correctly. Sit in the room and just every time she tries to stand up, say, Edith, sit back down. You're recovering from hip, uh, from breaking your hip. Well, she doesn't have the money for that, and the reason this PCA pastor wanted to talk to me is that he did have the money in money that he'd saved for his children's education and his retirement. And he wanted to know, does the fifth commandment, he's the only living relative, even though this is his grandmother, all of his parents' age is dead, and he's the only one in his generation. There are no other children to share this in any direction, and he wants to know, does the fifth commandment obligate him to take the money that he's saved and pay for a full-time sitter because his mom, his grandma, can't afford it. So that's the question. So right now you're going to talk about the three other problems that you have. And once you're done, you can try to figure out the answer to this one. So if you're, if you're done with the others, uh, you can also talk about, so you like two, three, and four in the back, if you think you're in the back. So you've got, you got one and a half to do. You can do the one that I just assigned you, talk about it, and then if you've got some time, you can figure out whether, these are just yes-no questions. Does honoring the fifth commandment mean that Grant should take some of the money that he saved and purchase a full-time sitter for his grandmother? Okay, recognizing that, of course, I didn't give you nearly enough time or information. Um, this is a little taste of how I teach. I'm teaching bioethics in the fall. I've got 30 students. It's going to be fantastic. My approach to teaching is to give them a a simply terrible problem before I've given them any instruction on how to deal with it. Um, And then they flop around like fish on a dock. And um, and then I say, oh, you mean you'd like some principles to to guide you? (laughs) Yes, please, principles! Um, And then we just do that over and over again. And that's, um, that's my ethics classes. While you're primed, it is very likely 
that while you were talking about this particular case, the case that I'd given you to think about, you also said, that's kind of like something I've heard, I've either dealt with myself or that I've heard uh, someone else had to deal with. And that's what the blue pieces of paper are for. The, so uh, my research is guided by problems that the church has. That's, that's what I want to do. I think I've got, a, I've got a degree in philosophy so that I can use those tools to serve the church. And so I'm hoping that you will jot down on these anonymously uh, problems that whatever, write, whatever I write about this, because this is going to turn into a book, uh, that whatever I write out about, uh, about this will answer the question that you put on the blue card. So I have a friend who's uh, facing this problem. <laughs> what, what do we do? It would help me tremendously if you would just write out some other nasty thing that uh, didn't end up in this set of problems and then I will be able to take into account, because that it turns out to be one of the hardest things to get, is true accounts of the way people have, have struggled to honor their parents. Because people don't want to talk about it, because the, very, the, the fact that they're struggling with it means that they're slow to tell people, I'm having trouble loving my, my dad right now, and they know that that's wrong, they shouldn't be having trouble loving their dad right now, so they don't tell anybody. So tell me, anonymously, and just put it on the blue piece of paper. Uh, that would help me a lot. Let me. Uh, <clears throat> so we're, we're going to come back to those. You'll see. <clears throat> uh, so honoring parents, uh, most of you have made your peace with honoring your parents while they're still cognitively all there doesn't quite run to obedience. But you're not sure where the limit is. And every once in a while, your parents sort of lose track of how old you are, and they give you a command. Like, still, I'm 63 years old. Um, it's been a little while since my mother like, straight up commanded me to do anything. <clears throat> but it hasn't been 45 years. <laughs> it's, it's been more recent than that. Um, <clears throat> how do we, what does it mean to honor our parents when we're no longer children? And especially, what does it mean to honor them when they're, they become dependent? Um, Ephesians 6, of course, tells us Paul also affirms this. And if this were a a different seminar, um, I could go for half an hour on how cool it is that the Bible over and over again says, honor your father and mother. Because it's it's only cultures that have been touched by Scripture that include the mother in the honor. All the other cultures say, honor your father, uh, protect your mother. Because most, what reason teaches, I think fallen reason teaches that you honor the people you, you fear, <laughs> not you honor the people that you owe an enormous debt of gratitude. Uh, so honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you in the land that, and that you may live long in the land. This is an important word, but uh, what does it mean? So when you're a kid and... Just take my word for it. Figuring out when you stop being a kid is complicated. Biblical times, it was age 13. It isn't clear to me that that's going to work now. Uh, I have no idea what to do between 13 and, what, 26 now. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure. The law makes it increasingly hard to tell a 23-year-old that they're not a child because the law says they're still a dependent. Um, but for sure, when you're under 13... You obey, there's two parts. If you look at uh, all of the testimony in Scripture, there's two parts. You obey their lawful commands. If they, if they tell you to lob, rob the liquor store, don't do it. Um, and then you make them proud. 
And if, if, uh, if this was at all complicated, the examples that we have in Scripture, like Noah's uh, children, one of them laughs at Noah when he's drunk, and the other two honor him, walking backwards with the cloak and cover up his nakedness. Um, you're supposed to protect, not just protect the dignity of your parents, you're supposed to uh, make them proud by advancing their projects. When you're a kid, if they tell you to practice the piano, practice the piano. Uh, my mother is in the Washington State Piano Teachers Hall of Fame, and I'm living proof. <laughs> I took piano from age 7 to 17 uh, because my mom said to. So obey them, make them proud. When you're an adult, oh, here's the longest passage of Scripture in the Old Testament on honoring your parents. My son, keep your father's commandments and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them to your heart, on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Now, it's important to note, this is Proverbs 6. Proverbs 1 through 9 is a long poem that's drawing a contrast between two women. Wisdom, who stands in the middle of the street and says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No kidding, that's the structure of Proverbs 8. Take, take my word for it. And Jesus does know what he's doing. Um, but wisdom is a woman. And sin is a woman. And so in Proverbs 6, when it says to preserve you from the evil woman, it's not just the sin of adultery that is in view. The words of your parents will keep you from sin. All of it. Father and mother, listen to them. And I think that what that means is that when you're an adult, you, instead of obeying, you pay careful attention to their counsel. Now, I realize some of you are thinking, my children need to hear this. <laughs> of course you're thinking that. Your children do need to hear this. And the, the way they're most likely to hear it is if you seek out the counsel of your parents who are still able to give you advice. If you ever wonder, why aren't my children treating me better, treat your parents better. And honestly, you don't have to go tell your children what you did. They know. So here's you want to make a difference. So seek their advice. Act on their wise counsel, even when it means admitting they know something. I know that'll kill you if you're 22 years old. I remember Vividly. <laughs> uh, but that's not all. In so obedience becomes uh, seeking their counsel. Making them proud becomes being their cheerleader. So this is another way that you can honor your parents now if they're not dependent. Is that you can find out what their projects are and say, you go girl. Like, just cheer for their righteous projects. Uh, and then don't say anything about their unrighteous projects. It turns out that the most effective way to get anybody to do anything different is to praise what they're doing. Whatever you praise, you'll get more of. And whatever you criticize, you'll get a lot less of with resentment. So you don't want that part. Just praise them. Cheerlead their righteousness and industry. Yay, Mom. My mom had 20 piano students until she was 87 years old, and three of them were in Africa that she taught over FaceTime. At the age of 83, she taught herself how to give piano lessons to missionary children, holding her phone to, so that they could see her hands. Yay, Mom. I like my mom. 
So uh, from Scripture, we've got honoring means at least respect, gratitude, encouragement, protection, and provision. And I realize all, you all know this. Uh, most of you are either uh, ruling or teaching elders or somehow adjacent. So you all know that God's commands are given to us not as a test to see whether we will live a miserable life so that we can get into God's heaven. But God gives us his law because that is the way of thriving. Keeping the law perfectly is the most pleasant possible life, period, right now. Eternal life is what I'm in the middle of right now. I'm doing it. And I make a big deal of this with my first graders. When does eternal life begin? Uh, You told us it began like whenever you come to trust Jesus. Right, so am I in eternal life right now? Yes, you're in eternal life right now. I'm Mr. Bill to them for what it's worth. And some of you are old enough to remember when Mr. Bill was a little clay doll on Saturday Night Live. They don't know that. They don't think any, any year starting with a one is a year. <laughs> but what about when your parents become dependent? What does it mean? To, I mean, what does obedience to them turn into? And what does it mean to uh, make them proud when they're, they're not sure who they are or who you are or what they're doing? So uh, here I want to talk about This is going to go really fast. The story that you're telling makes an enormous difference on how you, the choices that you make and how you process it to yourself and how you pray and how you ask other people to pray. So I'm going to to give you three options for ways of narrating being the honoring child of a parent who's diminished and dependent. And the short story of it is our parents are always our parents. They are never our child. Now, the Bible doesn't give a lot of descriptions about what it means to relate to a parent who is demented, uh, what we now call dementia, the the things that allow you to live where your body is still healthy enough uh, to live, live, um, and your brain is gone. People with those conditions prior to the last 50 years died. They got pneumonia, they did something dangerous, even if people were trying to keep up with them. The problem that I'm talking about here is almost brand new in the history of Christian reflection. And so here's, like, from a philosophical standpoint, it's super cool to have a problem that is almost entirely brand new. Uh, And from a pastoral standpoint, it is awful. Because there's almost no place to go to get confident reflection based on years of experience of walking alongside people who are caring for someone who is cognitively compromised and yet not sick, not otherwise physically sick. It's extremely difficult work. Um, It is something that the church should do, should just take for granted that there are many members of your churches who are caring for a loved one, either someone who's living in um, a nursing home or assisted living facility where they're visiting regularly and getting screamed at by someone who doesn't remember who they are, but they know they're supposed to visit them, or they're in their home, and they're doing the extremely hard work uh, that the the world thinks is not a thing. The world says, uh, if you were blessed, you would not have to care for someone who was draining the life out of you. And that's utterly false. It's not in the Bible. The culture has, well, I'll say a word about this. Culture has all kinds of lies about caring for older people who are cognitively diminished lies, and we have a pastoral role 
to make sure that our churches are not places where people are believing the world's lies. <clears throat> so I got three narratives. One is the Guardian narrative, and that is, this is the most common one in the Christian literature. This book, um, When Your Parent Becomes Your Child, is the number one Christian book on caregiving for um, a, a, a parent who has become dependent. The book is extremely well-intentioned. It is, in many places, simply beautiful, because it's just a journal of what this man did to care for his mother in the midst of her uh, cognitive, as she fell apart mentally. Um, but the advice is, is that you, you tell the story to yourself that my, my mother has become my daughter, and then you make choices for her the way you would make for a child. And there are, I, just, I should say this very quickly, there are all kinds of times when it's exactly like that. When, when what you need to do, what, what your parent needs from you is protection from threats, you protect them kind of the way you would protect a child. You put a lock on the oven door. When you have an absent-minded loved one who lives in your house, you make it hard for them to turn on the stove and then put their hand on it, the same way you would do with a child. That's true. But the story you're telling yourself is not, my mother has become my daughter. That is not the story you're telling yourself. Um, there are also choices that you make that, are, that will be different. Because, and um, this is a big deal in the medical ethics literature, there are two standards that you might apply when you're making choices for someone else. There's the best interest standard, where you don't... You don't think through what, what, is the, what are the values and life projects and priorities of the person who, who I'm making the decision about. I think in general about what I think a human needs, and especially what I think would be best for them. And then it's your estimate of what's best for them, not their estimate of what's best for them. And in the hospital, this has been one of the most important uh, revolutions in hospital care, in the last 20 years. 20 years ago, hospitals were perfectly comfortable with you walking in and saying, like, never mind what my, what my dad wants. If he can't make decisions, this is what I think is best for him. And the hospital said, oh, okay, not anymore. Try that in a hospital now. It's not going to work. They're going to say, no, the law is clear. You're here to give us what they would choose, because the other, and we'll, we'll see the other standard in a second. Um, so this is the most common advice you're going to get. It's going to be right in terms of what you actually do, in terms of the steps that you take, the choices that you make for them, the choices that you make protect to, to protect them, it's going to be right some of the time. But I think it's always going to be different from what the Bible says, in terms of how you imagine what's happening. I'll give you an alternative. I, this book was very troubling to read, because I, I thought... Uh, the amount of work that this man did to care for his wife, uh, his mother, was amazing. Uh, but this is, I didn't think it was the biblical way to think about it. So um, this is a big pile of elderly care that's landed on this poor person, if you can't see it from the back. This is the custodian narrative. It's, um, it is not the dominant secular narrative right now. It's, but it's moving up, if that makes sense. So one of the ways that I'm tracking current advice. So uh, I'm imagining that I'm somebody in one of your churches, and I don't say, what are books I could read about this? 
I go to the podcasts and I say, suppose, uh, suppose I was interested in what it means to care for my elderly, uh, for my, uh, my demented father. And so I put in search strings on the podcast saying, care, uh, loving care for demented father. And then I listen to the podcasts that come up uh, just the way people in your congregation would. Or, if they're slightly longer, younger, um, I go to YouTube <laughs> and I say, how do I do loving care, a loving care for my demented father in YouTube? And I watch the videos because that's what the people in your church are doing. I can assure you they are not going on Amazon, finding a book to read, reading a 300-page book, writing a thoughtful book review, and then handing it to their pastor uh, or an elder in the church saying, like, I'd like you to review my thinking. That is not what they're doing. Uh, They're doing what everybody's doing, which is they're going to YouTube. So that's how I do research now. (laughs) I do research the way people in your congregation are likely to do it. And increasingly, the podcast and YouTube advice about how to give loving care to a demented parent starts with, well, the first thing you need to do is do self-care. Like, you're going to have compassion fatigue. Here are the steps you take to make sure that they don't ruin your life. <laughs> and let's, like, the first half is making sure that they don't take too much out of you. And it's like, no, that's also not what the Bible says. Uh, they, your parents have not become an object or a burden. Your parents are your parents. So uh, I don't like this one either. <laughs> This is one I like. It's hard. Uh, You're their advocate. You imagine that there are choices that have to be made. Everybody's sticking a a microphone in your face and saying, make choices for this person that you love. They will affect the limitations they experience. You've seen from the case studies. They'll affect what happens with with money. It'll affect their options for uh, intimate relationships. It'll affect uh, exactly what it means to give them truthful answers. It'll affect whether or not you hire a sitter for them. You're protecting them, but you're not protecting them because they're a child. You're protecting them because they're your parents. You're honoring them by protecting them. You're, uh, so um, in order to separate these three possible ways of imagining the story that you're in the middle of, um, I, I now focus on cases where these different approaches would give different responses. So let's think about um, you've got a child, you're in, the, you're in the boarding area for a flight, and your child uh, has uh, messes uh, himself. Are you, are you going to protect your child's dignity by not changing their diaper there in the, changing, in the boarding area? No, of course not. You're going to change their diaper right there in the boarding area. What if you're there with your uh, demented father and he messes himself? Are you just going to uh, change his diaper there in the boarding area? No, of course not. He'd be horrified if you did that. Be, of course, he doesn't know what's going on, but he would be horrified if you did that. And so you're going to go to a a private place, or you're going to find a way to screen him off. You're going to protect his dignity in a way that you wouldn't with a child. So the guardian narrative, the my parent is my child narrative, is going to get it wrong from time to time. And that's an embarrassment, it turns out to be. You're going to take steps to limit your parents' embarrassment, even though they're demented and wouldn't notice. This is called the substituted judgment standard. 
you choose as they would choose if they could understand the consequences and tell you. If, if your father knew the consequences of needing to have his diaper changed, waiting to board a plane, he would run the risk of missing the plane rather than being disrobed in front of everybody else trying to board the plane. So you think, what would my dad choose if he could understand the question and make the choice? So that's, that's the principle. You're an advocate, which means you're going to make the choice that your parent would make if they could understand, if it's biblically permissible, right? If what they would do is, is punch the waiter in the mouth, don't punch the waiter in the mouth, that would be inappropriate. Um, that's the standard. This is not going to settle very much of anything. But it does make it much more likely that you will go about making choices. I don't mean it, it won't settle. It won't make it easy. It's still going to be very hard to do. And it'll get dramatically easier the more you know about what your parents value, what their life projects are. Talk to them now. That's going to be, once again, um, if you've ever heard me talk about medical decisions at the end of life, the beginning and end of all those talks is, go talk to your parents right now. <laughs> and uh, if they won't talk to you, go talk to your children and invite your parents to watch you talk to your children so they can be shamed into telling you things that they should be telling you. I take the shame part out. But um, they might be inspired. Uh, not shamed, but inspired. Caregiving is a skill. And it's also a spiritual task. It's a spiritually thick thing. Um, every caring act is a victory in a spiritual conflict that we can't see. The demons are pleased when you are selfish and you harden yourself against caring too much. Every step you take against compassion fatigue, well, I should, be, I should be a little more careful. Compassion fatigue is a real thing, but when you're motivated to, you're, when you're taking steps to limit compassion fatigue because, out of selfish interests, that's not what you're supposed to do. There are reasonable steps to take to make sure that your energy will stay high. That's fine. Um, this is um, Elisha praying that his servant, who's afraid of this measly army <laughs> down here, would be able to see the chariots of fire on the hillside. Um, if we could see the spiritual battle that was going on in all of the houses in our churches with people who are caring for a loved one who cannot thank them because they don't understand what's happening. And it's difficult. Um, there's a whole bunch of distinctions that I'm just going to steamroll in this talk for lack of time. Uh, I think it's, there's a difference between uh, the care that you give, slight difference, uh, between the care that you give a loved one who doesn't know Jesus from the care that you give a loved one who does. I don't think it means you let one of them die, and, not, and that's not like that. Um, I think you, when you have a loved one who doesn't know Jesus and they're cognitively diminished, uh, you're doing everything you can to make Jesus palpably visible, which means you're talking to Jesus about how important it is for you to be the sweet savor of the gospel for your loved one who doesn't know Jesus. You're going to be even more patient with the loved one who is only going to come to know who Jesus is by the way you love them. I think there's this, uh, sometimes it goes to, to choices, uh, but it's a spiritual fight, it's, and it's a way tougher um, spiritual fight 
than almost anybody realizes until they're in the middle of it. And then when they're in the middle of it, they, they think the thing they need most is support. And the thing they don't have time for is finding support. Um, and they also feel like a failure. As soon as they say, look, I need somebody in the church to, su- to, to provide me with just people I can talk to about this who will pray with me and understand what I'm going through. Right? So the church should be doing this before they ask. Just uh, set up a support group. Say, uh, we're gonna, uh, all of you who are uh, going to provide respite care, you, you have to find people who are willing to provide respite care. Say, uh, if you're interested in coming to a support meeting, uh, there are deacons and uh, deacons, uh, people who help deacons who are willing to provide respite care so that we can have a one-hour meeting for people who are caring for loved ones. Uh, sign up. Try it at your church. You're going to get 30 people that sign up who didn't know it was a thing. And it will mean an hour a week of being able to talk to other people uh, and just people who understand exactly what you're in the middle of makes a world of difference. So it's a good thing for the church to do because it's, first of all, a spiritual fight. Satan wants you to despair. Don't. The world is full of lies about this. One is that it's beneath you to care for your parents. Like, because, come on, if you were a success, you could pay somebody else to do this. No. (laughs) Um, I think the most successful people are the people who say, of course I could pay someone else to do it, but it's my parents. This is what I want to do. This is a privilege, because it is. So, your time is worth more than that. Um, There's no shame in either giving care or being cared for. The world wants you to think that both of those things are shameful. It isn't. Uh, first things just reprinted Gil Mylander's I Want to Be a Burden to My Loved Ones. It's fantastic. It's easy to find. Uh, it's been reprinted in lots of places, but it was utterly scandalous when it first appeared in 1995, but they just reprinted it on the 25th anniversary, 20, 35th anniversary. Um, talk to your parents about Jesus. Um, My mother's mother came to know Jesus when she was 93 years old. After being a member of a church for most of her life, she didn't know Jesus. And she was declining, but she wasn't, she hadn't, there were periods of lucidity. And we would go and we would just, when we thought she wasn't able to pay attention, when we thought she was fogged over, we would go and sing Jesus Loves Me. And she started singing with us. And she became lucid and we talked about the gospel, and she said, Jesus is my only hope, what do I do? 93. Um, even with people who are in a coma, hearing is the last modality to go, and what we are able to understand. There are people who remember what's being said by the people in the hospital room when they were in a coma. So we don't know exactly how the brain works. Um, talk to your cognitively challenged loved ones about Jesus. Sing hymns, read the scriptures, pray with them. You have no idea what's going on in there. Um, honors what love looks like. I don't have time. Maria's throwing things at me. Um, <clears throat> this is the principle. Ask, uh, choose for them as they would choose. Let me just, uh, in the time that I have remaining, let me say this about Edith and Grant uh, before I talk about them. So we had the case... Um, about Roger and Hannah, does the Fifth Commandment obligate Hannah to answer questions about her mother coming back completely and truthfully? Um, I, think you, I think Hannah should protect Roger, which means saying truthful things, but not completely. I think you can say she won't be coming today. 
so that he doesn't go through the grieving again. For what you say, what Brian says to the... So this, this is really important, and it depends where you live. If you live in the South, they will separate uh, people who aren't married in the nursing home who are becoming physically intimate. But in the Northeast, they won't. I went to a, a philosopher's conference about this, and they were all sure that you should stop the, the woman who's kept kosher her whole life from eating bacon... But they were all sure that you should not stop anybody from engaging in sexual activity because it's the only thing they've got left to enjoy in life. <laughs> so in the Northeast, what you need to say is he would, he would want, not what you want, he would want you to separate them. That's the language you use. I know what he would want, and he would want you to separate them. And then the last one, um, I do think that as long as you're spending your parents' money, you should spend it the way they would spend it, including tithing on a... Uh, proceeds from their investments. Last thing about Edith and Grant. I said, now remember, uh, you know, because you do pastoral ministry, you don't get to say, um, I'd like to form a study committee and give you an answer in three weeks. <laughs> no, you're sitting at Starbucks. And I, I, so uh, I said, so um, if you could ask, if Edith could understand what you're asking, would she want you to spend the money that you've set aside for her great-grandchildren's education and for your retirement? He said, she would be horrified if I spent the money that way. I said, well, then what options do you have? I mean, how will you feel if she tries to stand up at a time when nobody's there and she falls and she dies? He said, um, that, would be, that would be terrible. I said, what would she think? Would she blame you? No, she would, she would want me to keep the money for that purpose. I think you honor her by not spending money the way she'd be horrified by. Now, they talked to the people in the, the assisted living facility. They agreed that, I mean, nobody could sit with her, but they would alter their, pattern, their walking pattern so that if they had to get from here to here in the hospital, they'd go past her room and just look in and make sure she wasn't trying to get up because it took her a while to get up. She lived for four months, never fell, uh, died of uh, respiratory distress. She died. I mean, that's not great, um, but she didn't fall. And I think that Grant was honoring his grandmother by not spending the money in a way that she would have said, please don't do it. It's easy to imagine Grant having a different grandmother who would have said, spend it all. <laughs> and truthfully, I don't know what to do about that yet. I mean, I've got a rough theory, but I don't have a confident answer, confident answer yet. So I gave you an easy case. But you might give me hard cases on the blue pieces of paper that I should be able to, to deal with. I am just davis at covenant.edu. I got an email address before they thought first names would matter in 1997. So if you have any questions or comments, davis at covenant.edu. If you send me an email, I'll send you all the slides in raw PowerPoint form. You can put your name on them, use them, take my name off. That'd be fine. Thank you. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.